This morning, our scripture focus is Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5 and 9 through 11. I'll invite y'all to read those words responsibly with me, if you will. Isaiah writes, listen, there is someone shouting, prepare a way in the desert for the Lord. Every valley must be filled. The crooked roads should be made straight. Then the, then the glory of the Lord will be shown to everyone. Yes, this is what the Lord himself said. Zion, you have new, good news to tell. Jerusalem, you have good news to tell. Tell this news to all the cities of Judah. The Lord God is coming with power. He will bring rewards for his people. Like a good shepherd, he takes care of his people. He holds them close. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Isaiah 40 is a wonderful prophecy that talks to us about a guy known as John the Baptist. In it, it describes the leveling of obstacles in life, talks about a straight road in the desert where the sand is always blowing and changing which way the road might go. Verses 3 and 4 talk about valleys filled for a smooth path, mountains brought low rather than having to tunnel through them, crooked and rough roads made straight and smooth. The passage indeed is a prophecy of John the Baptist being a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. But this is one of those passages, that's, passages that is a, yes, it's that, and it's more. Because it's also a call to you and to me, a call to you and me to go out and prepare the way of the Lord by proclaiming the truth of faith, by pointing others to what they can hope for in Jesus Christ. What if we were to have a hope so powerful in our hearts and minds that it becomes a message we too share about God, preparing a way for the Lord. That's what we're going to talk about today in the sermon. Now, Isaiah 40 in popular culture has unfortunately become a bit of a source of cynicism, if you will. People in popular culture are like, okay, you said back in Isaiah all these great things are going to happen. Why is it taking so long. Why haven't valleys been filled? Why haven't mountains been leveled? Why can't all the blind see? Why can't all the deaf hear? Why isn't everything perfect at this time? And so it's become a cause of cynicism as being undone. And I always think about that when I read this because it takes me back to my days in middle school. When I was in middle school, we did a musical at my church called It's the Lord's Thing. 
and my buddy David Holcrest got to play the good guy, and I got to play the bad guy. And in the middle of it, I got to sing, if you will. So a child was born, and a son was given, and his government would increase, but I don't see any sign of it. What became of the promise of peace? They called him names like Wonderful and Counselor and Mighty God, but what are the things he could have done? Don't you think it rather odd? I mean, if all this power was his, why couldn't he bring to pass all the marvelous things that were prophesied? Would it have been too much to ask? A highway in the desert will be redemption sign. The valleys that once were lowly will gain a higher line. Each mountain and hill will be made low. The rough places will be made plain. That which was crooked will be made straight. In a glimpse of our God we will gain. We think by now we'd see somehow these miracles begun. But you can't deny my bitter cry. They have not yet been done. And believe me, when I did that in middle school, I shared it with a lot more passion than I did with you all just now. Like I really believe how much that was saying. But you know, when you try to interpret those passages in Isaiah 40 literally, you're missing the message. Because the whole passage points ultimately to verse 11 and what God's going to do there. Let's read that together again, if you will. Like a good shepherd, he takes care of his people. He gathers them like lambs in his arms. He holds them close while their mothers walk beside them. The entire passage about mountains being leveled, straightways being made, valleys being filled, is all pointing to the fact that God, as a good shepherd, would take care of his people, hold us close, and walk beside us. Scriptures abound with the ways that it talks about the fact that God is our good shepherd, that Jesus is our good shepherd. John the Baptist pointed to Jesus as the good shepherd. For today's study, we're going to dive into the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. Look at some of the very first words of what he wrote about Jesus Christ and his lineage. We're going to read a list that often makes your eyes glaze over, if you will, thinking, is this another passage I have to read every word of? But in them, we will find a truth of faith. We will find a reason for hope for you and for me and for other people you know in your world. In them, you will find lived out how the good shepherd works in the lives of all kinds of people. In them, we will find evidence of that which we hope for and that which we believe. In them, we will find truth of God's care for all people. Before we dive in Matthew 1, though, I want to spend just another minute talking about how John the Baptist fulfilled the prophecy himself of Isaiah. Dr. Joyce Brothers once wrote, love comes when you dare to reveal yourself fully, when you dare to be vulnerable. Again, that's Joyce Brothers writing that. And this is the kind of love that the ministry of John the Baptist called people to. John the Baptist dared people to reveal themselves fully to God and make things right. Be vulnerable enough to perhaps admit you were wrong about a thing or two. Anyone here ever been wrong about a thing or two? Or maybe a million things or two, right? And after you admit being wrong about a thing or two, find salvation in God's goodness, or as John the Baptist put it, repent for the kingdom of heaven 
is at hand. He called men and women to give their hearts to God vulnerably. And as a result of making that relationship right with God, to find that the valleys of doubt in their life were filled with faith in God's goodness. The mountains of sin in their life were leveled by the tsunami of the grace of Jesus Christ. The crooked lives they lived were being straightened to the voice of the Holy Spirit calling them to walk with God as well. You know, if you're ever tempted to say to God, you know, why aren't you moving those mountains like you've told me you're going to move? Why aren't you filling all those valleys you told me you would fill? Maybe ask yourself, will you move me? Will you change me? If you see no evidence of God's transforming work, perhaps we should look in the mirror and say, change me. And if you want to know if God's working in a new way, one place to find that, like I mentioned earlier, is Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. We're going to read it responsibly, if you will. I'll give you a chance to practice up on your biblical names as we read a little bit of the lineage of Jesus Christ together. I'll, I'll uh, read the white print. I'll invite you to read what's in the yellow, if you will. Reading from Matthew chapter 1. These are the ancestors of Jesus Christ, a descendant of King David and of Abraham. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah. Perez was the father of Hezron. Aram was the father of Amminadab. Amminadab was the father of Nashon. Solomon was the father of Boaz. Boaz was the father of Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. David was the father of Solomon. So Matthew is writing to Jewish folk here, trying to establish the lineage of Christ, going all the way back to Abraham. He's writing to friends, family, and people who think like him, a good Jew. And he writes much more of the lineage, which we're not going to read all of, but he wraps it all up in verse 17 to try to make it look like history makes the sense that history does. He writes there, these are 14 of the generations from Abraham to King David and 14 from King David's time to the exile and 14 from the exile to Christ. 42 generations divided into three sets of 14, pointing out again in another way that Christ came right on time. The Bible writers like numbers, and these numbers add up just right. Contained within those first six verses, however, is an interesting picture of the perfect, grace-filled love of God. So we're going to dive back into those verses a little bit. How does Matthew show God as the good shepherd as he records the first six verses. How does Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, give a message to the world of who's included in those six verses? How does it show in those six verses that God indeed finds the lost lambs? How does he hold them close while their mother walks beside them, as we read earlier in Isaiah 40, verse 11? 
We're just going to look at four names. There are four names you read. It's the four names of the women in the genealogy of Christ. Four women who the church today would be tempted to reject. We'd say, unlovable, unwanted, go down the road, find another church, not here. Four women God found, God loved, God moved, God held close, God walked with. Four women whose stories give hope to the world today and we'll see how they show hope is in the heart of Christmas, how they give hope to you and to me. So let's dive in. Those four women's names were Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. One of them was called Uriah's wife, but we know Uriah's wife was Bathsheba from other testimony in the scripture. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. These were women who lived out the fact that like a good shepherd, God takes care of his people. He gathers them like lambs in his arms. He holds them close while their mothers walk beside them. These four women are the only women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ other than his mother Mary is mentioned at the end. These are four women who are not mentioned there accidentally. They're not put there so that Matthew can say, don't live like them. They're not put there and put down. Instead, they're listed in the genealogy of Christ. Four women in the flow of history that led to Jesus being born. A Savior who knew all about these women and loved them. What else do these four women have in common? If you know their stories, they all love in ways outside of biblical teaching, if you will. We're in church. We'll use gentle language with one another. But who did Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba love? How did Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba love? And what does their love say about God's love? After all, isn't that what's most important? You might see up here, I have Amanda Gorman. She uh, read a poem at uh, Joe Biden's inauguration a couple years ago, and she wrote the following. There's always light if only we are brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. Today, I want to look at some light about how God's love works, that you got to be pretty brave to believe it, but the scripture is there. Where is the light of hope we can see? What is God saying that we must be brave enough to believe? How does Matthew's genealogy give us the hope of love? So all four of these women had babies in the lineage of Christ, and we'll deal with them in pairs. Tamar and Rahab are similar. Ruth and Bathsheba are similar. Uh, Tamar and Rahab both loved men for money. Rahab had the job description of being one who loved men for money. When the spies of Israel came, God worked through her to save their lives. She's a hero in the Bible, and she's included in the lineage of Jesus Christ. However, again, outside of biblical teaching with an area of her life. Tamar was a widow whose father-in-law did not care enough for her that when she was widowed, she then got to marry someone else in the family. So Tamar dresses herself as a woman who loves her money, 
disguises herself in doing that and goes ahead of the road where she knows her father-in-law is coming. Her father-in-law comes there, pays for love, and she has a baby from him with proof because she gave him some of his clothing when all that transaction happened. I think we'd all agree that the Bible does not condone love of or love for other people's money. And yet Rahab and Tamar are included as ancestors of Christ. Ruth and Bathsheba both loved very powerful men. Ruth was a Moabitess. The Moabites were a cursed people, according to the scripture. She was desperate to save herself and her mother-in-law. She meets Boaz, an older, rich man, and she lays at his feet while she sleeps. When he wakes up, she realizes, he realizes she's offering herself to him, and he brings her into the fold, and the whole family is restored financially and spiritually. Other than being cursed as a Moabitess, that's all we know about Ruth, which would make her incredibly included in the lineage. Bathsheba, on the other hand, is simply a woman taking a bath. King David sees her. Men bring her to him. She bears his child. He arranges to have her husband be killed in battle. Ruth and Bathsheba, both women who, again, have a history that might make people question, but they're included in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. If we're brave enough to see the light, we can see perhaps how broad God's grace is beyond our scope of understanding. Praise God if there's hope for those four women, there's hope for you and there's hope for me. Praise God that the same grace that was there for them is there for us also. Galatians 3.28 says the following, read it with me. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. The genealogy of Matthew 1 makes this point proved. They were all found to be loved by God despite being from a different tribe, despite from being challenging life circumstances, despite being from challenging life choices, God still said, you are mine. We would not approve of how or who the women in our study loved, but God says, I love them because God loves saints and God loves sinners in the sinful world. Jesus, what came to us is Emmanuel, God with us. When he inspired Matthew through the Holy Spirit to write the genealogy, he inspired him to include the names of those four women so we could learn from it. These women are not saved by who they loved or how they loved, but they indeed are saved by the gift of grace through Jesus Christ, just like you and me, and that's why we can have hope this day. Hope is in the heart of Christmas because hope is found in Christ's heart. May we, during this Christmas season, with all we meet, extend the love and grace and acceptance to them that God shared with us. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you in his hope. 
May the Lord's face shine upon you so that your face can shine out that hope to everyone you're going to see. May God look upon your life with favor and grant you the opportunity to share his hope with others today, tomorrow, and forevermore.